Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to be talking to Tiffany Kagure Mugo. Tiff is so many wonderful things, it feels difficult to describe her, but I'll do my best. She is the self-described, intoxicatingly scary gatekeeper and co-founder of Hola Africa, a pan-African queer womanist digital community dealing with sex and sexuality. She's a TED and TEDx speaker, podcast host, and board member of the Frida Fund. Tiff is a prolific writer of opinion pieces and useful blogs. She's the author of the book, A Quirky Quick Guide to Having Great Sex, launched in 2020, which sold out in many bookstores in the weekend it was published. No surprises there. She's a media consultant and freelance journalist who tackles sex and a huge range of other topics for The Mail and Guardian, Huffington Post, The Citizen, This Is Africa, and others. And in her TEDx talk titled A History of Coochie Conversations, she says, So basically, we live in a world that is so sexually powerful and electric, but so sexually violent that you don't know whether to masturbate or carry a machete. It's this ability to talk about serious, taboo, and sensitive topics with humor that is warm and inviting, that makes Tiff one of our foremost writers and thinkers on sexuality. So today I'm going to be talking with Tiff about call-out culture, good sex, and the power of pan-African feminism to change the world. So thank you, Tiff, for being on the show. I'm so happy to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Woohoo! <laughs> Full disclaimer, I love you. So this is probably just going to be a completely unbiased interview where I basically just talk about how wonderful you are and you just sort of smile in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I have had the pleasure of putting you in two of my collections now, both Feminism Is and Living While Feminist. Both of your pieces in those books are not talking about sex, really, which is amazing. They're talking about accountability and honesty, but also about the harmfulness of call-out culture. So I'm going to quote you to yourself again. In your Living While Feminist piece, you say, These days, if a person is seen to have, excuse my French, fucky politics, they will be snatched quicker than you can say, that person is problematic. They will be taken to task for their trash, and the community will hold them accountable. The benefits of this are that, as a collective and as individuals, we can now do better because we know better. We can, in this moment, download the necessary upgrades so that the system does not crash. It can be an annoying and sometimes painful process, but a necessary one that ensures that we are still able to continue to make this world better. The call out is necessary. Mm -hmm. So why did you think these were important topics to write about from a feminist perspective? It was actually inspired by some of the backlash, the anthology and the call for it was getting. And I was just like, what the fuck are you people about? And that's why I have that part where it's like the baddest, most radical bitch in the room, right? And there was a lot of people who were like, what is this anthology? What is it doing? And I'm like, you guys are actually calling it out for clout. And it just made me start thinking about call-out culture in general and how it can be so, so helpful. But also sometimes people are using it for the clout, sort of building their political repertoire and looking like, you know, they don't take no guff and they're not going to let things slide. For me, I was just like, 
no. Just it's a hard no. And I, I think because I spend so much time just, just watching things that are happening in the world, especially on the internet. And like, you know, I was in a feminist group and somebody's sending screenshots about the call. And it's like, does anyone know who this is? And I'm like, I do. And, I, and they were like, oh, okay, cool. And then we had a whole conversation about the call for it and stuff. And I'm like, why is Jen getting so much gaff for this? And I'm like, as Holla, I have done this like 8,000 times. And some of you people who are getting so pressed have answered my call. There's a lot of politics around who's asking, which is also sometimes useful and sometimes sort of overwhelms the real conversation about the quality of the work or whether it's valuable, which which is where you go on to say in your piece, the call-out culture is useful, except when it isn't. The problem comes when the politics of visibility and thus the need to perform our politics of call-out culture is used not to make us all be better by doing better, but to bring attention to the fact that we are the most radical smart bitch in the room. That's when things get toxic. So how do you tell the difference between performative wokeness and a helping hand? So, <laughs> so I think to, get, to come back to uh, like the example of like this, this um, anthology, like, look, you have access. And I think what was really, really incredible about what you're doing, and maybe it's also because I'm kind of biased, because, you know, it's nice to be out there being like, my bitches is doing things right. Forget you people. If you're another white honey, I'd be dragging you for filth. Maybe it would be that. But I think with this, the fact that it was an anthology and you really wanted to include like a diversity of voices and you weren't just out here just being like, I'm going to just put like all of my best white friends in there. Cause like, you know, I, I've seen your repertoire, you know, like some really like proper white honeys and you could have just filled it full of that. Right. And so like, I think the fact that you used your access because you be having access to publish an entire anthology and to publish not one, but two is, is really incredible. And not everyone has that access and you use that access to be like, look, I'm trying to create an inclusive space. I'm trying to get different voices. Had I found out that, you know, you're only paying white people and black people must come and do a thing. Because I heard about that as well. I heard about this, you know, using black women for their labor and stuff like that. And I was just like, okay, cool. But did you ask whether, like, you know, only black people are not being paid? No, but, you know, and I'm like, then fine. Then I'm like, okay, then fine. So what is, why are you pressed? What are you angry about? And I think that's what I'm trying to, like, bring up in the piece. And I'm like, you can't be pressed for the sake of being pressed. You cannot be angry for the sake of being angry to be the baddest, most radical bitch in the room. Because like, you know, your anger and now it's like a badge of honor and you're this person moving the world forward and et cetera, et cetera. And that was like one of the questions I was asking in this group. I was like, okay, so cool. So people are saying that, you know, like using black women for their labor. And I'm like, but you also don't have to write. Just because she said you should like, she invited you to write, you're not going to get rounded up and put in jail. If you don't want to write and it doesn't fit your politics, that's really fine. Like back on up and like let somebody else fill the space, right? Look, we get it. There has been a history of like white people exploiting black people. And it's not even like a history of like 3,000 years ago, 100 years ago. It's like a history of like two years ago, right? But then also there needs to come a time when you stop and you look things in the face and you're like, what are you doing? Like, what is this? What is the vibe? Like, you know, because one of the things that was also a problem as a pioneer, we didn't know where this money was going. And I'm like, when in the history of ever have you ever known where the money for an anthology is going? How many times have, has Holler produced an anthology or done something and no one has asked? Just a short interruption. For those of you who might be wondering, the proceeds of Feminism Is and Living While Feminist go to the Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust. 
They are South Africa's oldest NGO working to end the trauma caused by rape, provide counselling and support to survivors and to assist survivors in their journey through the criminal justice system. You can find out more about Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust via www.rapecrisis.org.za. And now back to my conversation with Tiff. And so when we have this call-out culture that cancels people, when do we allow people to go back and say there was some error made here or, you know, you know, I misunderstood the situation? It makes it really hard for a friend or a bystander, you know, like, like it re- makes it really hard for people to do that in public. So I wonder what you think about that. So my whole thing is I've gotten to a point where I'm like, look, if you do something wrong, publicly say you're sorry, privately say you're sorry to people because also that's the mistake that people make publicly saying they're sorry, then never privately saying they're sorry. And then the people who they actually wronged come out and are like, okay, I didn't hear shit from this bitch. Like I have not heard a thing from this honey, right? And so like, I think it's like one of those things of like, say you're sorry in different spheres, actually try and mean it. Apologizing is hard. Like Stevie Wonder did that. What is it? Sorry seems to be the hardest word song, but then disappear for a while. Disappear so people feel like, you know, they're rid of you for a little while and they've shaken you off and stuff like that. Call out culture makes me so tired. And sometimes I'm really, really scared that I'll be on the receiving end. And I, I just, people have tried. And my thing is always to be like, Hey, like we'll publish an article on Holland and people will be like, ah, and, and then we'll just be like, sorry, we've taken it down, whoever it hurt. And then we'll just not. Because I think one of the deepest things people do is to engage with the visceral. And then it's just a lot. So, it, I mean, it is a lot because what the ideal is to get people to correct their behavior, right? So that it's to give advice to say, hey, I think you've made a mistake there. So that next time around, you don't make the same mistake or cause the same hurt. Um, which you make this point in your essay uh, when you talk about the impact of this on social justice, for example, you say good people don't do the work because they're afraid that people will harass them for not doing it right rather than providing them with a helping hand. The need for radical accountability politics is necessary, but how it manifests in our collective home is scary sometimes. People seek more and more to be the voice or the one who knows how we should be doing things. It's so scary that the fear can free some people trying to do the work to engage in the space, to be part of the movement, because if they don't measure up, then those who have the increasing social capital to do it will drag them for dirt in the name of accountability. So I wonder if there's times when you have chosen not to do work because you are afraid and how you decide what work is and isn't worth doing. So I'm a firm believer in staying in your lane. Um, But then the problem is it comes back to like that whole thing that I was saying at the top of the podcast of you, you might have access to something and able to like take something further, but you're, you're, you're frozen to do it because you're like, what if I don't do this properly? And I, I have done that a lot where I'm like, look, I don't know enough about this. And I try and reach out to people and they freeze me out. Right. And they don't say anything and they don't reply. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Without these certain voices or without this certain vibe, I can't do anything about this. Right. Because I know if I try, the minute I even dip a toe, the vultures will come, right? The vultures will come and there's so much work that I haven't done, despite the fact that I have the time, I have the access. Like, guys, I have the sort of time where I can go to a bar at midday and still get my job done. Like, guys, I got time, I got access. Like, I have privilege out the wazoo in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of ways I haven't been able to use that privilege because I'm like, woo! If I mess this up, 
then it is absolute tickets for me. It's absolute tickets for any work that I was trying to do. And it's absolute tickets for the work that I have done that is incredible, right? So, like, I think there has been times where I have been very, very paralyzed and very, very unable to do things. And I've let projects go that potentially I could have started and then people could have just, like, jumped on and been like, look, this is how you do it. Maybe cut this out. Maybe reach out to this person. Maybe do this. Maybe, But I know starting would have been an absolute dumpster fire. So I have a question sort of linked to the general discussion is how do you think we can make better room in the feminist movement for growth and for observing growth and progress? So I think creating actual safe space, like actually having safe spaces where, um, you know, you're not dragged for filth. I think within our spaces, we should have a lot more space to be kind. And I think hopefully COVID will teach us how to be kinder, because, you know, we've had moments of reflection. We've had moments where we realize we're actually trash human beings. Like, I have had days like that where I'm like, whoa, Satan, why are you like this? Why are you like this? But I think, like, genuine kindness and genuine feelings of mentorship and community and allowing for mistakes and allowing for conversations. Because I think we've spent so long, like, well, actually, we've, we've gone away from being nuanced, so we don't have space for conversation. To give the example, like, of, of, like, the work you were doing and people dragging you for being, like, a white woman, it's okay. White women are always dragged for filth. Sometimes y'all need it. It's fine. But, like, it's not even like that, right? It's just, even when you get into smaller and more nuanced spaces, you know, you have people dragging each other for not being black enough and dragging each other for not being queer enough and dragging each other for not being enough of a black queer feminist which is such a nuanced thing like guys guys like it's such a nuanced thing but apparently we're not enough of that thing and I think it's one of those things where because we finally and I think it's it might be a problem of because of finally finding our voices and being able to you know voice our you know distaste about things because you know as women, as queer people, as anyone except heterosexual, straight, white, abled men, like no one has been able to say anything for the longest time. And now we have like this, like the internet and we have spaces and, you know, we have our own thought leaders and we have our own this and that and this. It's just gotten to a place where everyone wants to voice an opinion and everyone wants to be really, really deep about the opinion they voice rather than thinking of like, okay, cool. You know, like, I, I understand we have a, a lot of, sometimes we have a lot of, like, stress and rage and we really want things to change. But also, how can we be kind within our private spaces, you know? And it's that very, very semi-toxic thing of, like, let's, let's keep things that are at home at home and try and fix them within the family, but with kindness and with nurturing. And it'll, it'll make things happen so much easier. Because I've seen, one of the things that really broke my heart recently was... Um, I was part of a conversation and there were some young feminists there and they're like, older feminists scare us because, you know, we haven't read Audrey Lorde and we haven't read Bell Hooks and we don't know the things and we can't quote Judith Butler off the top of our heads. And like, and I was just like, but, but these tiny items, like literally they, they found things on Twitter. Like some of them, like, you know, didn't even do those things in university. Like it's nice there by us who like, did queer politics in university and did feminist studies and did gender studies. And it's really nice there by us. But like some of these people found you on the internet for 280 characters and you expect them to know bell hooks. How does that make sense? And I think we just need to genuinely, genuinely be kinder. Like gen and, and not just use kindness as a catchphrase, not use self-care as a catchphrase 
or use community care. Woo, that's the new one. Oh, Lord. Every 10 minutes, community care. Community care. Community care. Get the hell up out of here, man. But, like, we can't even say anything or do anything. Those are my feelings. I feel like we would just, if we were just genuinely kinder to each other. But, like, yeah, that, I, I completely agree with you with the idea of, like, have the conversation. Because I, I, I'm, I'm in the firm belief of with your community, quote, unquote, DM first mm-hmm. and then put on blast later. But I feel like we go very, very quickly to put on blast, right? Anyway, enough about that. Let's talk about sex and relax ourselves and do Friday. So you have been writing about sex for such a long time and I'm, I was lucky enough to get a copy of the Handbook of Queer African Studies and I was looking at your piece today which is uh, Teaching Sex Times. And you say, in a hyper-sexualized world, one would presume that there are so many places in which one can get the answer about the sex and sexual education that you want to have. Magazines, movies, the internet, your older cousin who once heard something from someone else, etc. But they go on to say that globally, sex education is mediocre at best and detrimental at worst. Overall, the internet as an archive of sexual acts remains, in the eyes of many, very scary and problematic. So can you tell me a little bit about when you started writing about sex, why you think it's important to talk about it publicly, and what does a feminist conversation about sex look like in your mind? So I started writing about sex in university. Um, so back in the day when we started Holla, it was a case of somebody was like, look, in order to get Holla in different spaces, you need to start writing about the stuff that Holla speaks about in spaces that are not Holla. And that's when I started like writing about sex and engaging with sex and doing like all sorts of vibes and things like that. And then it just became one of those things. I was originally a politics writer. Like I used to write about politics and things like that. And which is why it's still in my bio, even though I don't remember the last time I wrote about politics. Um, <laughs> so with that, it was just a case of I, I began to realize more and more that even as I was learning, a lot of people were learning and a lot of people were interested in it. And sometimes, guys, you just got to do what you eventually know and you do what you what realize, you realize works. And guys, writing about sex worked for me. Like it worked for me. It opened doors like I, I, I want to say that I was on this big mission to save the world. But I'm like, oh, man, this opens doors for me. I'm getting columns I would not have. Like, I didn't have to, like, go head to head with, like, the Rebecca Davises of this world, right? Because they're writing about politics. They're being feminist. I'm like, I'm just going to write about sex. I'm going to go left. And this works for me. But, like, eventually it got to a point where I was like, I realized more and more that these conversations were needed. And the more I realized I needed to learn and the more I put out there, the more people were like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know this or I didn't understand that or sliding into the DMs. I think for me, it was my family asking me questions where they were like, OK, cool. We don't know about this sex writing thing, but I have a conversation and I have a question and I have a query. And I was like, OK, cool. If my conservative Kenyan family can be like, this is an asset, despite the fact that it brings much shame then like what is the rest of the world feeling and what is the rest of the world doing and it just and I think it's so important to frame it in a feminist way because of the way and I'm gonna say it the patriarchy has tainted sex right making it super phallic making it super heteronormative making it super everything that takes the pleasure out of a lot of people's sex actually everybody's sex right and people always talk about how you know feminize or like making sex feminist like really takes away like, you know, the pleasure from men. But I'm like, do you understand how much more 
a feminist is willing to do, is willing to explore, is willing to conversate about. Like this honey is willing to do things and is ready to do things and is ready to take you places that you have never been before, right? And is ready to like have conversations about erection-free sex and what it means to body shame when you can't get it up rather than, you know, everyone being tense, being like, look, I get body shamed all the time. I understand what body shaming is. What just happened there is so fine. We're going to find a different way to do this sex thing. Feminists will save the world. It's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think feminist sex is just the only sex that I know how to have and so far so good. So, Look um, at you. Look at you. <laughs> but you've taken it to a whole new level because you've really, you've created access for people to ask difficult questions, I think. And now you've got your new book out, which is called The Quirky Quick Guide to Having Great Sex. came out in July 2020 and you had a launch with Dr. T in August. Um, and in the write-up, it says of your book, this, qu- this book will answer your burning questions and tell you all you need to know. And I was thinking, cheapers, like, go to, <laughs> what a huge undertaking to try and sort out all the fucked up stuff we think about sex. But so um, if you can, let's just do the ins and outs of what this book is about, what readers can expect, and what has been the response so far from your fans and from your family. Look at you make me sound like Beyonce from my fans. Well, you know, my Instagram has blown up. I am now an influ- I kid, I'm not. Um, so b- basically this book, the whole vibe about it was for it to feel like your best friend is talking to you over a glass of Chardonnay and being like, fam, you need to get that dick and you need to get that dick well. Or fam, you need to go down on her properly. Like, and that was the whole point of the book. That was supposed to be the vibe. And I wanted it to go a little bit further than the quintessential sex guide. So I included, so yes, I included consent, talking about getting STDs and STIs, getting it tested. But I also took it to places like, you know, how to enjoy food and sex, how to, you know, have a proper breakup because having a breakup is a proper part of sex. You know, um, there's a chapter on how to have a one night stand. There's a chapter on sexting. There's a chapter on having like making a, a sex tape and stuff like that because I wanted it to be a lot more all-encompassing when we look at sex and sexuality. Also, I snuck in a whole bunch of sexuality terms, right? So the straights don't know, right? They're going to learn something, but they don't know, right? Because, you know, you, it's sex was like, I wanted this book to be basically kind of like all the mush-up of things that are in my head, but in a coherent way. Thank God for Naima, right? <laughs> but in like a coherent, proper way, like tackling the whole array of the experience, um, not just like technically like, you know, the ins and outs, not like, you know, how to like, how to prep for anal sex, how to, you know, get into kink. I, there's a chapter on non-monogamous relationships because that's something that's like, it's something that a lot more people are getting into. So I wanted it to be about sex, but also about everything around sex. And I wanted it to like weave and interlock and to be like, oh my gosh, okay, cool. So I'm having one night stands or I'm having a non-monogamous relationship long distance. Let me flip over to the chapter about how to send nudes. And then, oh my gosh, you know what? Actually, the person's now in the country. Let's flip to the chapter about how to talk about getting tested and things like that. Oh my gosh, this person's actually an absolute douchebag. Let me flip to the chapter about how we're going to break up like adults. One of the things, 
please, please, please unfollow them on social media. Don't do that to yourself. You're better than that. You're better than that. But yeah, so that was kind of like the vibe of the book and what I wanted it to be. And I, I wanted it to be like, when you're sitting there and you don't know what's up, you can just open the book and your best friend will tell you what to do. And it is really quite fine. I loved what you said in the launch about um, the sexting in particular, which I think is such a useful thing to talk about from a feminist perspective in terms of, you know, wanting to enjoy the same fun benefits of technology that offers you, that technology offers you sexually, but also staying safe in a country and a world where sexual violence is so common. Um, And you mentioned the idea of the eyes or the prize. Would you mind just telling us a bit about what that means? Eyes or the prize, hey! Um, So basically that's the idea that don't put all the goodies in the, in the shot, right? So if you're going to put like, you know, a photo of you where like your, your private parts are like, let me just use big words, guys, where your pussy or your like penis is, then don't put your face, right? Don't put any markers. Don't put anything that can actively, you know, tie you to the photo. That's, that's always hard. Like I have tattoos all over my legs and I'm like, I'm always sending nudes with my legs in them because I love my legs, right? So if you know me, then you'll be like, oh, that's the koi fish from Tiff's upper thigh. I see that, honey, right? But like what I'm trying to say in that is try and make it like as close to plausible deniability as you can, right? Don't, don't, don't be like, you know that thing where people like to stand in the mirror and just take a full frontal as if like, you know, you're doing like, What's that thing? A mugshot, but for like your entire body. Yes, that's the one. Jen just did a pose. Loved it. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I think it's one of those things of, no, I think, I know it's one of those things of no matter how much you trust people, no matter how much, whatever, like technology is not loyal. Somebody could get their phone fixed and the person fixing their phone could be like, well, damn, which is something that happened to somebody in Zambia. This guy had a sex tape of him and like a one night stand or his girlfriend or whatever. And he went to get his laptop fixed. And the guy who fixes, obviously, when somebody's fixing your laptop, they need access to it. That's how they know it's fixed. Um, So this guy found this video and then proceeded to make DVDs of it. Whole DVDs, guys, and sell them on the street corner. And now apparently this woman's last name is synonymous with porn in um, Zambia. So, like, it's one of those things. So even if you trust this person 100%, like, there's always the off chance that they could lose their phone. Their phone could get stolen. They could update things to the cloud accidentally. The worst is, so I had to do a presentation the other day for like an entire board and I gave them the caveat. I was like, look, I have to share my screen, but whatever is up there, I do sex positive work. So no one be shocked, guys. Don't be coming here feeling some type of way. Okay, just everyone calm down. So like even something like that where a photo on your laptop could be shared to the cloud could be shared to a Google Drive, could you never know. So plausible deniability is always the best route. I think that's so helpful. I mean, a, a weird story that I have is that I was walking around in, in my neighborhood the one day and a car pulled up next to me and mugged me of my cell phone. But in the process of hitting the mugger with my umbrella to try and get him to not take my phone, he dropped another phone that he had stolen from two blocks over. And so I picked up this phone to take it to the police station with me. And I was trying to look for like any identifying things on what I could find. And it was just like a series of nudes of this person's sexual partner, which was not exactly what I wanted to give to the police, thinking, you know, they're going to have this phone. What are they going to do with these nudes? So I think that's fantastic advice. Just 
and it's also I suppose like there's a fine line between um, in South Africa, especially when we talk about sexual violence around not victim blaming, not saying like you must take all these steps to avoid violence, but around being sensibly using technology, which I think is really nice about that eyes or the prize analogy. <laughs> the other thing that I really liked about the book is that you're talking about sexual and reproductive health as part of, you know, having a sexual relationship. And I think in South Africa and many places in the world, the word consent is new. The, the idea of talking to your partner about getting sexually um, tested for STDs and other health issues is something that people find really difficult to to raise. Um, so why do you think it was so important to put in? And do you have a short tip for people maybe listening who are thinking, maybe I do need to talk to my partner about that? So it, it, it's, it's one of those things. It's often left out. Um, you know, just like, so consent, so whenever people talk about, like, sexual reproductive health, they just talk about the biological aspect of it, and I think what I wanted a lot with the book, and you can see that in not just those chapters, but every chapter is the social aspect of it, the so psychosocial aspect of it, and um, I think it, it was so important for me to put that in there, because the only way you can practice safe sex, the only way you can engage in consent, the only way you can, like, like keep yourself sexually healthy is by having conversations and is by having the tools to have that engagement. So um, for me, one of the things that I, I am a firm believer of in terms of speaking about, you know, sexual health and stuff like that is to set aside time about it and be really intentional. Because I think that's what the chapters, zzz, plural, um, try and tackle. Just being like really, really intentional about the conversations you have, be they sexual history, be they the need to get tested, be it consent, be it even like what your kinks are. Like there is a, there's an element throughout the whole book of intentionality, like say things with your chest, right? Say things with your chest, like be as upfront as you can about it. And that means not having conversations about stuff like after coitus, like don't be lying in bed and be like, that was lovely penis, but I wonder if it's clean. No, fam. Like, actually have the conversation properly like grown-ups and don't try and, like, smother it in other things. I think that's such helpful advice, especially for people who maybe have not started having any sort of sex or who are only seeing penetration as sex and not seeing, like, the full range of sexual experience as possibly having also health risks. And um, you said in, the, um, in your book launch with Talang that you're not a, a sex guru or a connoisseur of coitus who's going to fix all of our sex lives with your one tweet. But I wonder what the best bit of advice you've ever received about having great sex is. So the best advice has always been it's actually never that serious, right? And I think one of the problems we've always had with sex is everyone's like, it's that serious. Oh my gosh, you're going to lose your virginity. Oh my gosh, you better wax because it's the first night. Oh my gosh, make him wait for three days. And then like with the dudes, it's always like, oh, you better bring the D and like, you know, you better like, you know, masturbate before so you can knock one out and you better not get like, you know, you better not lose that erection. There's always just this huge pressure Right. And I think it's just been constantly perpetuated. So like, you know, before it was that whole thing of like, you know, you know, you as a man, you must be Vera. You must be like have like thousands of children. And, you know, she must be shaking in the knees when she leaves. And as a woman, you know, every every sexual experience is this massive thing that is happening. And then like now we've moved on to a time when, you know, like really sexual images and porn and stuff like that are shaping how we see stuff. 
And then now it's like, it's become the same narrative. It's almost like, you know, different script, but like the same general like narrative where it's sort of like with men, it's like, did she squirt? Like, do you have a penis down to your knees? And with a woman, it's sort of like, do you have this sort of body? Are you moaning like this? Everything is so serious. It's never that damn serious. Like have fun doing sex. Sometimes you'll do that queefing thing. Sometimes, you know, you won't have an erection. Like, you know, and it will be like, the world is not ending, right? Like, you know, one of my fears is to fart during sex. Like, I have this really weird fear and I'm going to work through it. But like, you know, in the middle and then all of a sudden, no, no, you see, I'm stressed just thinking about it, but it's never that serious. And I think that is one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given. And it was given in a very throwaway way. And I don't think the person remembers that they told me this. And that has been basically what I've built my entire sex positive career on. <laughs> Maybe you should just go ahead and let loose and get it over with. You know, like, I refuse that. Farting <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, you know, that, that being able to just relax and say, like, this is actually supposed to be a fun and pleasurable activity is, is very helpful. Um, I also think I've noticed a lot of stuff on Twitter when COVID was first breaking that they, we were all going to be home and now we're going to have like nonstop sex deadlines be damned. But as the lockdown down has gone on and on, I think lots of people are struggling with the general background of anxiety and depression and the impact that has on your sexual drive. And also with just being around your partner the whole time, which is really not the greatest ingredient for hot sex. So I'm wondering, you know, you've spoken already about people who are having difficulty with erections as like one of the classic man fears about sex. What advice do you have for people who are struggling to feel sexual or make time for sex at this particular moment in history? Do not pressure yourself. Like, do not let... The internet is not loyal. Being like, oh, guys, all we're doing is climbing walls. We're not having sex like four times a day. I think one of the best things I've learned in my sex positive journey is that sex is what you need it to be. So sex positivity and owning your sexual like journey is not about having a lot of sex. And I think we need to bust that myth, right? And I think that applies to this time. Like simply sitting there with your partner all day, every day, watching Netflix and having like deep conversations is as powerful as climbing walls. And it's as beautiful and as amazing. And it's one of the things I would say to people is don't pressurize yourself to have sex because that is the biggest sex blocker ever. Being pressurized to have sex, being pressurized to like jump in the sex, like, oh my gosh, we've now got eight hours in a day to touch each other as opposed to two and a half in the evening when we're tired. No, no, you, if you find that you're having less sex now, you know what, that's great. That's great. It's as great as if you feel like you are having more sex than ever like all of it is really fine and I'm really really wary to give advice of like oh no if you're having less sex do this and do no that no 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 have as much sex as your mind your body your spirit your your situation is allowing we need to stop doing this thing where we use other people's sex lives as markers and tiktok there was this challenge where people would go up to their partners naked like and just like drop a towel right that was the whole thing where it's like see how your partner reacts and like there was all these like really deep reactions like people's partners are so thirsty i was like wow and then i was like wait why aren't i doing that challenge then i was like "Eh, i just want to sit on the couch and watch netflix and also i'm feeling some type of way and also the future is so uncertain and just 
you know what, do whatever you need to do, whatever you are doing. If you're having sex once a week, if you're having sex once a month, if you've only had sex once during the entire lockdown, all of it is valid. Yeah, I mean, it takes the joy out of it when it feels like a chore, right? I think it's useful to reinforce that everyone has different sexual needs and desires. And that's an important part of having great sex is being with a partner who respects your desires. And if you're on your own, doing it with yourself when you feel like doing it, not because you feel like you should be getting off the whole time because you've got all this afternoon time. So, And also knowing that your desire fluctuates. I think that's another thing that we forget, that our desires actually fluctuate. So... Everything from, you know, being in June to being laid off to, you know, the sun not shining because we've also just gone through winter, right? So there's also that. And there's so many things that can cause your sex drive to fluctuate. And I think what panics a lot of people is trying to fix it because we should have a sex drive. We're like, we're like this big sex positive world now. And even coffee is you like even sex is used to sell coffee and tires and McDonald's and teddy bears and everything. So we should all be having sex. So when we're not having sex, we are social failures. No, fam, it is really okay. <laughs> we are basically everyone. You do what you need to do to get off or not to rest. And um, so I have three quick questions for the end of the podcast. And um, one is, what is a book that has inspired your feminism or your sexual positivity journey that you can share with some of the listeners? So African Sexuality is a Reader has really shaped a lot of the things that I think about sex. It's also the material I use for the basis of both my TED Talks. But um, I don't think that I have any books that have like truly, truly inspired me. And not, this is not to say that like that is not like that these books aren't out there or whatever. But like it's actually kind of just not the way I roll. Um, if you see from like my writings and the way that I write, it's engaging with people that has truly inspired me. Oh my gosh, I sound like such a douche right now. I'm just I'm just drawing from the world. But yeah, that's actually true. I am literally just drawing from the world. And I find that um because I, I also get very distracted very easily, learning from books is not always the best. I'm not the best at book learning, but African sexualities a reader is really, really great if you want a very brief, very powerful snapshot of sexuality and sex on the continent, because it has some powerful essays. It was um, edited and compiled by Sylvia Tamale, who is a titan, a whole head wrap wearing titan. It has like works from like Zetu and Chimamanda and like it's just it does a whole thing. And I've, and I've loved it. But over the years, it's actually just engaging with people, like meeting people like yourself, like Taleng, like, you know, Casey Blake, like so many randoms who have just been like, woo. And also all the queers I've met. God bless them. And just, yeah. Yeah, that's that's basically been it. <laughs> You're probably going to hate this next question as well, but do you have a quote that inspires you? Stay in your lane, base your scalp and drink your water. I don't <laughs> know where it's from, but like I feel like it just encompasses what everyone needs to do. Just stay in your lane, do your squats and drink your water. Like don't don't mind other people's business. Like <laughs> just leave it. I was going to so the final question was going to be advice for other feminists on their journey, but I think that's pretty solid. <laughs> advice as well do you have any other bits of advice (laughs) um just be kind to each other be kind everyone is learning like look I wrote a whole book and even in writing the book I was learning so much but I still felt I had the gumption the gall the liver to write a whole book but even in writing it I learned so much and that's why I actually asked other people to contribute because I knew I still had more to learn 
yeah so just be kind we're all still learning thank you so much Tiff, for taking the time today especially given load shedding and lockdown and, and all of the things that have sort of affected our slot but i love you as i said at the beginning and i think you are fantastic and i'm so grateful for the work that you do thank you so much for having me fam this was so fun Tiff's book, A Quirky Quick Guide to Having Great Sex, is available at all good bookstores. You can find out more about Tiff by following her on Twitter at TiffMugo. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Living Well Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Tune in next week for more conversations with feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.